So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. I'm Ollie Man. This is The Modern Man. And here is what's coming up today. The winds don't really matter while you're in the air because obviously you don't feel them particularly. It's incredibly quiet and still, even if you're travelling at 40 miles an hour. But they matter quite a lot when you come into land. Is travelling across a desert, dangling from multiple helium balloons like in the Pixar movie Up, the future of the package holiday? Probably not. But if it is, I meet the man who can make that happen. Plus, the orgasm is going to happen in five, four, three, two. Alex Fox counts down to an exciting climax, and Ollie Peart pimps his ride. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first, as in any good magazine, your letters. Hello to Tamsin, uh, now in Italy, but last week in Ireland, from where she tweeted us to say, no matter how much you pack and prepare in advance, moving country always results in last-minute chaos. However, listening to The Modern Man has been the best company throughout my packing madness. Uh, Yes, Tamsin, I do love to binge on a back catalogue whilst completing a mundane task. I just uh, hope you didn't get as far back as our episode, The Declutterer, because that may have caused some extra anxiety for you. Hello as well to Dan in Scotland, who got in touch after last week's Zeitgeist Challenge to say, if you want to make kefir taste better, just add a dash of concentrated squash from one of those pocket-sized bottles, such as Robinson's Squashed. That's uh, S-Q-U-A-S-H apostrophe D, apparently. Uh, Then the taste changes from a sour-tasting yoghurt to a lovely fruity drink similar to Yop. Uh, Thank you, Dan. And by the way, how delightful that Yop still exists in our cynical world. I'd have assumed it had gone the way of Chambossi Hippopotamus, uh, but apparently not. Uh, If you want to get in touch, then reach out via the feedback form on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk, or we are on Twitter, at The Modern Man. Uh, Before we get going, though, big thanks to our sponsors for this episode, beer 52 They are deservedly the UK's number one beer club. Uh, I've got a little cupboard above my fridge where I keep my Beer 52 stash. That's partly so that guests can't see it because I don't want them drinking the good stuff. It's also partly because my wife can't monitor how much I'm drinking. I tend to secretly... (laughs) go for one uh, whilst I'm cooking her dinner, and that brings me great pleasure. Uh, But there's no reason for you to have a special secret beer closet. (laughs) You will want to be celebrating their world-class monthly selection of craft beer delivered to your door. They send you great stuff from California, from Norway, uh, local beers too. It's all well worth a £24 a month subscription, but they have a special deal for you, man fans. A free case of beer. This is not a drill. It really is free. Eight beers, a snack and a magazine, worth 24 quid, free to you if you pay the 2 postage and packing. Uh, now, it is a trial case, so if you don't want the monthly membership afterwards, you have to cancel. But it's genuinely eight beers for free. Get your free case now 
at beer52.com slash man. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash M-A-N-N. And thanks again to them. Right, in this episode, you will learn what free writing for a hook line means, you'll discover a novel use for a £15 foldable camping chair, and you'll learn what has rendered Alex Fox speechless. I know, I didn't think that was possible. Let's go. Let's test out your listener-submitted trends with the man that the government calls Ollie Peart. Actually, they probably call you Oliver Peart, don't they? Well, if someone calls you Ol- Oliver, you feel well, like... Well, you're talking specifically just about my mother and grandmother, but yes. Yeah, exactly. You feel like you've done something wrong. So whenever the government write me a letter, I just assume it's a parking ticket. Well, you've given me a key to your um, psyche now. So any time that a task goes badly, I'm going to call you Oliver. Thanks. So, Oliver, um, on last week's show, Manfan Deck tasked you with the challenge of getting your car wrapped. He did. How's that been going? So I did a little Google, and one of the first things that popped up is a, a YouTube channel called Yanimize. And Yanimize is actually a bloke who owns a car wrapping place in Enfield. And he's made a career out of creating these YouTube videos where he wraps supercars, essentially. So Lamborghinis, Ferraris, Porsches. Remind us uh, of your brand of vehicle again. Peugeot 206. So I had to find a car wrapping place nearer to me, and it just so happened there was one round the corner in Poole called Raptastic, because what they have to do, they have to see the car. And they have to see the car because they need to see whether or not there's any bumps or scrapes or dents in it. Because if there is, they can't do a proper wrap job on it. Oh, really? Yeah. Rust is the number one thing. It won't stick to it properly. And with the bumps, because you'll have like a little air bubble underneath the thing and it won't sit very well. So they had to inspect the car. That was like step one. So I got in the car to go and meet them, put the key in, (laughs) dead. Nothing at all. So I actually went in a different car and just showed them a photo. And they were like, well, this isn't good enough. <laughs> so uh, chat there. Wouldn't do that for an online date, would you? No. Don't often <laughs> say, sorry, I'm not the bloke that you're expecting, but here's a picture of my friend. So I took them the picture and they were like, well, we need to see the car. And then I had to get the AA out. I had to get a brand new battery. I'm doing this for the podcast, by the way. And I took it there yeah. and they inspected the car. And then I found out how much it cost to get a car wrapped. So getting a car wrapped start- <laughs> starts at about 900 quid. It's really expensive. Jesus Christ. £900? <laughs> £900, yeah. It's a lot. You haven't billed that to the podcast, have you? By which I mean my personal bank account. Well, I was this close to doing so without your permission. Uh, but uh, I thought better of it. So instead, we came up with an idea. So I'm selling my car anyway. I thought, well, the whole point of the wrapping thing is to make your car look awesome and great. And you could potentially add a decent chunk of value to it. So I said, look, if you wrap it for free, right, I want 500 quid for my car. And then whatever we make on top of the 500 quid, we'll give to charity. (laughs) I don't understand the deal that you've done. The car's worth £500. We'll talk about you on the podcast. So you'll wrap the car for free. And then if you sell the car for £600, Mm -hmm. we'll give £100 to charity. Right, but they're still wrapping the car for free. You're trying to negotiate them down from £900 to nothing. Plus the general feel-good factor of having given £100 to charity. Listen, they just want to get out to the wider world how amazing car wrapping is. It's not a meet in the middle, is it? £900, I'll tell you what, how about nothing? <laughs> <laughs> they, they went for it. Did they? Wow. But the reason they went for it is because they were like, we really want people to see that car wrapping is the way to go instead of having your car painted. And I'm not going to lie, I was a bit sceptical. If you're going to wrap a car, I could just imagine it scratching... And ripping and coming off in like yeah. a few years' time. 
So they were very keen to show me that that wasn't the case. And they showed me all these different materials that you can have and they sort of demonstrated them on how durable they are. And Rokas, who's the guy that does all the cars, he does all the wrapping, he is entering himself in the World Wrap Masters. Basically, the World Championships for car wrapping. And last year, right, so they don't they don't wrap cars to demonstrate their skill because it's just too easy. Last year, they wrapped a woman mannequin. And so right, he okay. showed me his car. So he's got a Vauxhall Astra. And on the roof of his car, it's a high-resolution image of the Vatican ceiling. And you look at it, and it's amazing. And he's he's very keen to, like, get his car key out and just scratch the top and say, look, it doesn't oh, scratch. Wow. And it doesn't. What happened? Have you wrapped your Peugeot 206? Partially. We've done the roof. So this is what it looked like before. That looks like a very boring Peugeot 206. And this is what it looked like after. Wow. What do you think? What is that? I think I'm at the London Planetarium in 1985. Good. <laughs> and I'm on LSD. <laughs> it's kind of like a... It's like an 80s sort of weird geometric E-type computer pattern. Reminds me of CGA yeah. graphics kind I mean, of thing. If Patrick Moore ever presented an edition of Top of the Pops, that would be the title sequence. Yeah. They just wanted a high-resolution image, and I wanted to do something that was linked to audio in some way. So it's like a it's like a waveform, but in 3D. That's what it is. Oh, okay. So there is a sort of a, a tenuous link. But I didn't want it to be too closely related, because otherwise we won't sell it, and we're trying to make money for charity. Well, Ollie, for entertainment value alone, this has been worth it. I... <laughs> I hope it improves the value of your car. And um, thank you to Raptastic for uh, at least doing the roof. Well, and they will do the rest and we'll make money. For well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I'm looking forward to finding out. Right. Time to check in with your other ongoing quest for the series, which is to write a Christmas song by the end of the series. Uh, who have you been speaking to this week, Ollie? I've spoken to Philip Mark Anquitil, and he is a music producer based out in uh, Australia. And he's produced music for Little Mix, One Direction and Cher. Bloody hell, why did he take your call? He wants to help. He's really interested in producing... Are you actually saying you've recruited a serious proper music producer to actually produce it? This is the conversation that I have had with Philip. I said, I'm, I'm here because I want to yeah. make... And I've been challenged to create a Christmas number one. And he yeah. was like... That's you something haven't. You've taken this and run with it. Yeah. You were challenged simply to write a Christmas song. When this have I ever done things by halves? Stop. When have I ever done things by halves? Never. Apart from maybe the car earlier. I don't know when I've this became... by halves. Write and sing and produce a Christmas number one by people who have worked with One Direction. That's like, you take it too far. You're flying too close to the sun. I told him about some of the science stuff that I'd already been told last week about, you know, elements of the song and stuff, and said, can we put that into a song? And he said, well, listen, yes, we can. But you need to do one thing before you do anything else. Overhaul you your image need... completely and get it sung by someone else? When I'm Christmas number one, I ain't going to look down <laughs> at, you, at you from such a height. Anyway, he was like, you need to get yourself a hook line. When the only way you can get yourself a hook line is by free writing. And free writing is where you time yourself for like 10 minutes and you just write. So you know you're writing for a Christmas song and you're not yeah. allowed to be disturbed. You can't stop. You've just got to go. So that's what I did. Here's, here's a bit from like a couple of lines in. Christmas is a time to be with people, to listen to people, to hear people. That's a question for some reason. Christmas is about communicating. No, it isn't. What a load of shit. Okay, so snow, animals like deer or whatever. Sounds like Christmas. It sounds like Christmas time. Yes, right. Christmas is a time full of shit and bollocks. Stuff that doesn't really matter. What we need is to listen carefully to the sound of Christmas time. This is the time to listen to Christmas. Put on your headphones and listen to Christmas. 
<laughs> I quite like that. I quite like that. This is the time to listen to Christmas, put on your headphones and listen to Christmas. That's quite fun for a chorus. The rest of it, I'm not convinced about, I'll be honest. So I've sent all of that to Phil, and hopefully he won't run away. And the idea is that he'll look at it and he'll make a song from it. Whoa, hold on a minute. What? That's not you writing a Christmas song, is it? Um, well, That's I'll, you just... I'll help him tweak putting it. putting ten minutes work in and then a professional producer's going to choose the best bits and turn it into a song for you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Ollie, it's not ten minutes. Okay, that is 32 years worth of Christmas experiences combined into a mental spew that he is going to work into something magical. It is a writing credit, and that is the point. I will have a writing credit on a Christmas number one. As ever, I disapprove of the method. I admire the ambition. Uh, Time for next week's challenge. It comes from Hannah in Tunbridge Wells, who says, I travel a lot for work, and this week heard about Premier Inn's new pod hotels. Can Ollie stay in one? And tell us about them. She wants me to stay in a hotel. Well, what she wants is you to be her one-man trip advisor, basically. (laughs) Premier Inn have decided to open a whole new chain of hotels where the rooms are half the size of a normal Premier Inn room, which in the first place is a budget hotel room. It's less than half the price, I think, to stay there, but you're staying in a tiny little space. So she wants a small so she wants to know whether that's worthwhile. to stay in a small hotel. Yeah, you could stay in a coffin and you'd like be like, oh, this is very roomy in here. I mean, it's fine by me. Where are you sending me? Well, that's up to you. You can take the brief and run with it, as you so often do. I, I mean, I know that the trend, it doesn't have to be Premier Inn. I mean, you can stay in any pod hotel, I guess. Oh, OK. Let us know what, why they're the next hot thing. <laughs> and I imagine they are hot because most of them don't have windows. Oh. <laughs> If you have a challenge for Mr. Pitt for next week's show, then head over to our website, monmanwith2ends.co.uk, and click feedback, and you can suggest it there. Coming up next, you will meet the man who flew over Botswana with some party balloons. But first, it's time for our record of the week. It's by East London Quartet Free Money. It's their new track, You Got Me, and it's out now on Communion Records. Just too shy When I heard that one man had flown over South Africa attached to some helium balloons, I was intrigued. And when I found out that he wanted to market this to the general public as a race you could enter, I wanted to meet him. His name is Tom Morgan, and he runs a travel company out of Bristol called The Adventurists. They now run 27 events annually in 11 countries, including the Rickshaw Run, a two-week journey with no set route spanning the length of India, but you must be driving a clapped-out rickshaw, and the Mongol Rally, which involves crap cars and a journey to Mongolia. Uh, You'll hear about that in a sec. I started by asking Tom what the first trip was that he organised. The first one I think I organised for myself and my friends was going to the West Bank and Egypt, I think. Wow. Okay, that's not Magaluf. People chasing us out of their streets with stones, getting having no plan, in, when travelling around 
Africa a year later, completely ran out of money in the days before mobile phones and then having no money for food or lodging. But that's what you liked. Well, I liked the feeling of being in a situation where you're required to make decisions that actually have an impact on what's going to happen in the next day, next 10 minutes, rather than in our modern world where you can make as many decisions as you like and you know you can undo them with your mobile phone the next second you're never you're never lost you're never stuck anywhere really and then the other thing myself and a friend Jules had um, bought a really shit Fiat 126 when we were on the exchange in Prague and then just randomly picked a place on the map and tried to get there and we what was that place that place was Mongolia so we had a shit little car so with from the Czech Republic to Mongolia yeah where does that, I'm just scanning the world in my head, where does that take you through? So we were, we had planned to go through southern Europe and then Greece, then Turkey, then Iran, then Afghanistan, then Tajikistan, I think, from there, and then up through Kazakhstan into Russia. Okay, that's quite yeah. a place to pick on the map. We looked for the most ridiculous place we could find. So we had this crap little car as a... It, which turned out to be two cars badly welded together, we discovered later on, mm-hmm. and we got completely done. And then uh, we set off and we made sure, we checked each other's luggage to make sure we had none. So I think we had one pair of pants with our allowance for luggage, spare spare pants, and then we had Why? some... Why? Why? We were just trying to make life difficult. <laughs> but why? That's just, I mean, that's personal hygiene. That's not... <laughs> yeah. That's one thing not having a map. Yeah, I don't know. I think just having sweaty balls for three weeks. Yeah, it wasn't very well thought through, like all these things. Um, Was the idea that you'd buy underwear en route? Not particularly. We were just wanted to get out and find out what happened. It didn't work. It was a total shit show. What did happen? Uh, We got to the border with Iran in um, eastern Turkey and they just refused to let us in. Right. (laughs) Probably because it was so smelly. (laughs) I don't know. It was still incredible fun, even though we totally failed to do what we intended to do and I think that's the difference like if you go on holiday to India and you want to see the Taj Mahal and you don't see the Taj Mahal it's a disaster if you have no particular plan it's going to be interesting whatever happens and I think actually you get much more I get a lot more enjoyment probably the the enjoyment people would expect to get from discovering the Taj Mahal by strolling across a kind of you know the world's a kind of really shit pub but you meet someone really interesting and you know that, that kind of serendipity and you of of travel that is is a quite a rewarding experience and you get to meet people around the world and that you would not normally meet and I think that's far more interesting and engaging did you break down in the fiat yeah all the time yeah, it was a piece of absolute piece of shit so what happened when you broke down and you were in Greece and you didn't speak Greek and you weren't in a tourist area I tried to fit, just fiddle with the engine until it worked again and gradually I learned mechanics quite over the course of having a lot of crap cars. Uh, or you just stop and ask people. So tell me how that then spawned the idea of the Mongol rally. So I invited people. I created a website, used the Royal We quite a lot and lied about being organised. And then invited people to come along. And I, for some reason, thought there would be thousands of people turning up. Uh, but there weren't. There were only like six cars. And the idea was what? To drive to Mongolia in a shit car. So From? Th- from London this time. So okay, we we're well, going to go London to Mongolia in a car under a litre. And when you say you set up a website, were people giving you money for this or it was just turn up at this place no, and we'll all go together? It was free, yeah. I did it for fun. So it was uh, me again, uh, a guy in a Robin Reliant, a couple of friends in a Nissan Micra. That's Peugeot 205. Okay, so what is the ultimate shit car then? 
Uh, in my mind, it's a Fiat One Two Six. Yeah. Well, is that that's not what you had this time as well? Was yeah, it? yeah. Or was I, it? I've had five of them in my time. Did you go and get another one? What yeah. year was it from? Eighty. There must have eighty something. Right. It's rubbish. It's got a radiator at the back. It overheats. But yeah, they're great. The the rubbishness of the car is important because that forces you to break down and it adds another element of unknown. That's why we say crap car because then you don't know if you're going to make it. So this time you knew you were going to Mongolia and presumably you planned what would happen when you got to the border in Iran. Yes, yeah. We actually went a different route. Uh, Russia, Kazakhstan, Russia again, Mongolia. The worst roads were definitely Kazakhstan. There's a huge stretch, which is now a good road, which was basically just mud. And I'd never seen potholes that you could put your entire car in and hide it. There was one one point where the, the front, it has a leaf suspension at the front and it snapped and both wheels went kind of sideways and splayed out and sat on the ground and then they we got some guys for about three quid to weld the back suspension of a russian car so that we were driving with the kind of front wheels high up in the air so these people that had come along on this first mongol rally then that you didn't know yeah where had they discovered it from a friend of mine had a like phones for you equivalent company uh-huh and he agreed to mail out to his customers. Wow. So he didn't have, like, it wasn't like free for use data sales. regulations. Yeah. <laughs> just to email all my customers something yeah. completely irrelevant. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And it was one of those guys came and just turned up in a car. Yeah. Okay. So the third time that you organized it, yeah. how many people showed up then? 40 something cars, 42 cars. At that point, did you think this could be my job? No. Or did that, that come point, later? At that point, I was still, this is. Um, Thinking about. Yeah, we charged 50 quid, I think, then. Uh-huh. So that just covered the cost of hiring Hyde Park um, before they decided that they hated us. <laughs> <laughs> now, how many cars enter the Mongol Rally? About 400. Jesus. Yeah. Every year? Yeah. How did you go from all of that to strapping a load of helium balloons to yourself and flying <laughs> over to South Africa? Well, that, I think, is going to be a new race that the world is going to queue up to take part in. <laughs> Are you being serious, though? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so talk me through what happened. As I get more competent at things like fixing cars, it becomes less exciting. So at night now, I'm quite good at fixing cars because I've had so many shit ones. The Mongol Rally is probably becomes less exciting because I'm more competent at that scenario. So then we try and push to do more and more stupid, different things to just keep finding something interesting. And that led to uh, party balloons. What balloons? Uh, party balloons. Pa- are they actually literally party balloons that you use? They were a bit bigger, but they are from a party shop. Yeah. Okay, so explain the idea. Everyone has obviously held party, uh, helium balloons and wondered, you know, how many more do you need to, to take off? A uh, fairly standard childhood dream. And then I found an old article from a popular mechanics, 1905, something like that. No, 1920, but it talked about a 1905 race by Gordon Bennett called the Gordon Bennett Cup, which was this gas balloon race where they started in one location with one fill of gas with what's now called a Gordon Bennett envelope, which is a thousand cubic meters. So you had a standard amount of gas and then you took off and then you had to get as far as you could in any possible direction. And it was um, total disaster. Took, took off in what? In a, in a balloon, like a basket. So you okay, had, so like you a have, hot you, air balloon, yeah, but with helium balloons. Hydrogen, I think, in those days. Okay. Yeah, extra unwhite. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> so they had a thousand cubic meters. It was a big balloon. So they had teams of two or three people wafting about Europe. And it was a, a pretty much a massive disaster. I think they had like a few, a few people died and 
got lost in. Okay. And, and you, then, you rediscovering this in the 2000s, you thought this yeah, sounds great. Yeah, well, I, it actually, it still runs. It's a lot more organized now. Okay. Uh, but I, there is an annual Gordon Bennett Cup, but it's really expensive because obviously you need fancy balloons. Yeah. And it's not as much fun as party balloons or as cheap. So we, I thought, well, we can combine the two, go cheap and uh, accessible and uh, funnier. Um, so what were your initial experimentations? I mean, did you literally go to the party shop, get 50 balloons and see whether it would lift you off the ground? Yeah. There's a gas shop just around the corner from here in the office and bought more helium than there were lots of questions, which I avoided. And then uh, tied them to an office chair in Dorset. We t- remained tied to the ground because I was pretty sure it was highly illegal. Yeah. I was going to say also, like, I imagine the first time you do that, you are thinking, well, this might... This might be funny, but this is exactly the kind of small-scale way in which I could definitely die. Like, yeah. you know, falling 12 foot onto my pelvis or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a really unspectacular, stupid thing to do. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, yeah. so you were tethered to the ground. Yeah. And you did take off? Yeah, in just. In an office chair? Just, You, yeah. sitting in it? Yeah, 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 just about. Was it fun? Yeah, it is. It's very strange, I think, because you're not used to things pulling you up quietly. Like, you know, air- aircrafts tend to be noisy or loud or... You know, or things pull down because of gravity. But this very strange, completely silent force lifting you up is yeah. quite amazing. Because even obviously hot air balloons, you get the quite noisy. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really loud. Really loud. It feels very mechanical in a hot air balloon. If you stop doing anything, you come down. Whereas okay. this, just if you stop doing anything, you go up. <laughs> okay. So then, what was the idea about moving that into a maneuverable craft? Because, like you say, you just keep going up unless you find a way of steering it or bring yourself back down again. Well, then wanted to try and make that into a long-distance race, like the Gordon Bennett Cup. So, actually, party balloons, I think, are probably a relatively safe way to fly because you have multiple points of failure. So, like a, a big hot air balloon, you can set it on fire and fall screaming from the sky. Yeah. Whereas, unless you hit a flock of really angry and determined birds, you're probably going to be all right. Yeah, or at least you'll fall slowly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Just a few compound fractures rather than... Uh, complete annihilation. Okay, you're answering a different question. I said, how do you steer it? You're answering oh, you about how do you avoid death? Uh, <laughs> Is it basically not you steerable? You can't, it's not steerable. Yeah, no, correct. You just yeah. go straight up. You can steer it in that if you have good weather information, like any hot air balloon, the winds are at different directions at different heights. So if you know the wind really well you and you're planning, say, to fly from A to B, you can go to B based on where you think A, you know, where you'll end up, roughly where A is. But in this one... You don't have a clue where you're going to go, I think, because it's over a longer period of time. I don't think it matters. So we're going to start somewhere in the middle of a continent where there's a lot of land to crash into and uh, where we're allowed to do it and then go in any direction. I don't think it matters. So you personally did the first version of this trip that you're trying to establish. Yes, yeah. What did you do? Well, we went to Botswana and got it hideously wrong. I was supposed to go, I went with a friend, Buddy, and we were supposed to be actually having a little mini race to try it out. Um, and we were in the middle, we went to the Makadi Caddy Salt Pans in Botswana, which is a big open area. And uh, just started filling balloons up. And then it was very windy. They got, kept being destroyed. So we built an entire cluster of balloons and then you got a gust of wind and it just smashed them into the ground and burst half of them. And then, Did um, you think at that point, this is a bad idea, we should stop? I mean, if you've just seen 25 yes, balloons combust in front of you. Yeah, I did think this is a bad idea, but I just spent a huge amount of money <laughs> trying to get us into the desert. So I felt like a massive dick if I stopped. 
So we kept trying. What was the desert the legality thing? Was that because you can't well, there, there just suddenly just... fly in the middle of a city? Yeah, space and, set, and you know, you do, you, if you're going to try this out, you want a big open area where you've got a few more choices. And also to make it more interesting as well. You know, if we can drift around in Africa, it's going to be... It's going to be more fun than Scotland. But also you're going to, presumably, I mean, I'm sure you thought about this, but find yourself dropped in potentially the middle of a lion's den. <laughs> and you haven't got any support there, have you? Or no, did you have a team following have, you or what? We had people on the ground, but there's no way they can, they're unlikely to be able to get to you quickly. Um, we did think about that, but I assume they're going to run away from a... From a hundred helium balloons. Yeah, a brightly coloured object floating down from the sky. Okay, so a lot of assumptions at play. And presumably it wasn't an office chair by this point. No, it wasn't. It was, uh, we didn't want to pay extra on the baggage. So we bought a camping chair out there. It's in the warehouse, I can show you. So cheap, it was like 15 quid. A camp, like a foldable camping chair? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a foldable camping chair that costs 15 quid. Did you trust, I mean, seriously, did you think, is that going to support your weight at height? I mean, had, you couldn't test it, could you, till you did it? Well... I put a rope through the chair, so I knew that if the chair collapsed, I'd be sitting on the rope. Right, okay. So I wasn't too worried about the chair. It was and more about comfort. So you blow up loads of balloons, half of them smash. Yeah. When you get to the stage where the thing is beginning to rise and it's tethered... Yes. Do you, you, what, then, you then sit in it and say, right, let's keep going until I start lifting? Or what? Yeah, well, we, try, we tried for like two weeks. We ran out of water and food... Two uh, weeks? Yeah. No, sorry. We, it was a two-week trip. So we were there in the, in the desert, like hour, a long, long drive away from any supplies. Uh, we had no food or water left. It kept going wrong because we were trying to fight these weather windows to try and get it up and inflate it before the wind had turned and we could get into the air. We totally got it wrong. We destroyed all but enough balloons to just about get one person off the ground. And then... We'd run out of water, so literally the only, it sounds like a, uh, an excuse, but the only liquid we could buy was beer from quite a long way away. So we were, we just kind of had to give up on that location. And we had just enough balloons to try again. And one of our vets on the Mongol, we phoned one of the guys who was out there helping, a South African guy who was a great guy called Charles. Vet as in veter- veterinarian? Veterinarian, yeah. So Not a, right. Uh, he, uh, yeah, not as in not a veteran. No, no. He knew one of the vets in South Africa who had a friend who had this absolutely enormous horse stadium, which was indoors. So we thought, okay, right, fuck this desert. It's not going to work. And we've only got one attempt left. So we had like a four-hour weather window in South Africa where we thought we could try it. Because by this point, I was getting a bit desperate that we'd spent all this money and got all these people out here to do absolutely nothing. So we legged it down, filled it up inside the warehouse. It was obviously the thing we should have done to start with because it worked really well. We're doing it inside? Yeah. Yeah. And then took all the balloons out one by one and tied them into the chair at four, in, four in the morning. And then it was tied to the ground. Then, yeah, you sit in it. And you, I had um, jerry cans filled with water with a little tap on. Yeah. So that uh, had ballast, which means that then if you want to go up, you can release water. And if you want to come down, you can get, I see. get rid of a balloon. So I sat in it with too much water and then released the water until I was buoyant. And that way you don't get it massively wrong and you go flying up it. And what stops the chair from angling downwards and you tumbling out? Uh, Tying it on really well to the string. So we had a bit of climbing harness above. It was a kind of a hoop that goes through the chair. 
and then above that were clips to attach the balloons onto. Yeah. So I could see, I wanted to be able to isolate individual balloons because if I, you know, if you cut off like six balloons, you're going to fall really fast towards the ground, which I didn't want to particularly want to do. And when you say cut off, did you have literally a pair of scissors with you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's cartoonish, isn't it? That's why it's funny. <laughs> uh, the whole idea is very Roadrunner. And it's colourful as well, which is nice. It's, but it's petrifying. It, yes, you know, it is. It's, yeah. I can imagine it being beautiful when you're up there. Yeah. And I can imagine the visual impact of it, like I say, being amusing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, was, you're married, aren't you? You've got two yeah, kids. Yeah, I'm married and two kids. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. how did you, I mean, there must have been a part of you that thought, if this kills me, I'm a fucking idiot. Yeah, a lot of me was thinking that. And I was terrified. And I think, actually, it going so wrong to begin with, uh, it meant that it was so busy in the lead up to it because we worked, we travelled through the day, worked all through the night, so we hadn't slept for a long time, maybe three days, four days, that I didn't have time to think about it. So <laughs> it was just in a going, oh, fuck. And then uh, by that point, you're quite committed. But I was also, I think, through watching it go wrong, we gradually refined the process so that I, I was more confident of the engineering and in inverted commas that we had employed so is your vision for this, because you talked about this becoming a sort of more mainstream product that you can offer through your company, but is your vision through this that you supply all the technology? Because the whole point of the Mongol rally is people find their own crap car. No, or is it that people get their own helium balloons? Yes, it's, it's, it's the latter, that they'll get their own. Uh, partly because I don't want to be responsible for yeah. their shit decisions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that could lead to people dying. Yeah. I don't think it will. I think it's but more it could. Like, I mean, it's a it's a strong possibility, isn't it? I, I'm not sure it's a strong possibility. I think it's, as I said, it's got multiple points of failure. I think uh, probably less so than something like the rickshaw run where you're dodging Indian traffic. I suppose then the, then there's the exposure and the lions and the yeah. It's pretty stupid. Have you got other people, you know, queuing up to join you on this one? I haven't asked yet, but I'm pretty sure there will. You think? Yeah, I'm not. It's not going to be big because it's such a. It's so. It's going to be quite difficult to organise. So, and it's going to be relatively expensive just because helium is expensive. Yeah, well, on that as well. I mean, if you if this becomes a mass thing, people will say, "Well, you're abusing a precious the, resource." Yeah, yeah. Precious resource, yeah. Because I mean, it's used by the medical industry, isn't it? Helium? It is, but they're getting more. You know, that's slightly overhyped. There's there's more of it than people think, and we can always use hydrogen. How long were you in the air? Only an hour and a half in the end, two hours, because of that weather window. So the winds don't really matter while you're in the air because obviously you don't feel them particularly. It's incredibly quiet and still up there, even if you're travelling at 40 miles an hour. But they matter quite a lot when you come in to land and uh, the wind was gusting 40 or 50 knots at the end of the weather window. That was the forecast. So we wanted to get on the ground before that happened. And I got down, I was going to swap with Buddy and actually the winds came early and they started doing the same thing or they were ripping the balloons off the strings. That's not so ideal. Because again, in the sky, that's not too bad. But when you come to land and you're travelling at whatever 40 knots is in, in real money and you're being dragged along the ground, that's going to suck. Y- yeah. So I mean, that's a calculation as well based on not having the experience, just instinct, isn't it? Yeah. You yeah. didn't know you weren't going to get dragged across the ground when you landed. How did you land? It was amazingly straightforward, actually. The actual landing when I landed was quite almost like I knew what I was doing. It was fairly, <laughs> fairly soft, but just by chance. I think I came in to land a couple of times and undercooked it. So I was kind of, I was really worried about smashing into the ground and like compressing my spine and and crying in pain for a long time. Uh, so I was like coming in really gently 
And uh, I just kept bouncing off some kind of thermals on the ground or something. And then I went, okay, if I'm going to come in and land, I need to. And yeah, I realized I had to be quite decisive where you just like waft about into telegraph poles and things. And now you're working on a flat pack printed biplane. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to unpack for me what that means. I mean, a biplane, that's like a World War One aircraft, right? Correct, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So flat pack? Laser cut out of plywood. My goal is to make something that's really cheap. I originally thought under a thousand pounds, which I maybe can't reach once you've got an engine and things. It needs to be super lightweight, so under seventy kilograms, because that changes the regulation. What, uh, what regulation? The one where you need a pilot's license. <laughs> okay, so this is another adventure holiday. Really, I know you don't like calling it that, but it is where someone would get a pack with a plane in it. Yes, they'd build it themselves. In, my goal would be that the final design will take only a kind of a day to build the rough structure, and then obviously you've got to fanny about with it. But I want it to be quick to build. And building the plane sounds awesome. Getting in it, it's <laughs> not for Less me. So, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Fair I enough. mean, who's it for? Like, who? I don't know. That's a ri- again, it's a risk, isn't it? It's a huge. If you would you get in a plane, you'd built yourself. If I mean, you not really want to know what you're doing. Yeah. Not straight away. I'm gonna. I think that my other theory is that because it will be cheap to make, uh, I can like fly them destructively for quite a long time. And just make sure that it works by remote control and then okay. before I get in it. Where could you go in something of that weight? Well, where would we do it? Yeah, like my, what kind of distance could you travel? I don't know. My goal, and this is probably through gigantic ignorance, is to go from Hawaii to Micronesia across wow. the Pacific. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's what I think we're doing. But, um, How far have you got with the development of that then? Not very far yet. Um, I've made lots of designs. I'm getting the first bits laser cut out soon and then we're going to start destroying it and the reason a biplane is because to keep it cheap i want to use kind of plywood which is not a highly structural material and a biplane is kind of inherently structurally sound because you've got a kind of box shape around the wings what's driving you to create these experiences for people i want to do them myself i think i've always wanted a plane but i tried to build a biplane when i was about five in the shed out of plywood, and I'm not. I'm telling myself it's not related, but it was a complete bag of shit. Obviously, it was five. Just had loads of bits of plywood, badly screwed together. I always dreamed about flying a homemade aircraft over a jungle to an island. Yeah, that's all right. That maybe that is too much of a coincidence. That probably is like some deep-seated, islandy uh, childhood obsession. What's your message to people that are listening to this who are seeing all the ads on the telly to book their summer holidays for this year? And, you know, the stuff that's being pushed at people is, you know, book yourself a cruise, yeah. uh, you know, go to Sandals. Yeah. I would say go for it if you're sure that's what you want, but consider there are more interesting things out there that will be less, far less react, relaxing and you probably will need a holiday afterwards, but that will be ultimately more interesting. Where do you go with your kids? Oh, like Sardinia. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere where there's like a sea and it's really easy to manage them. I do like holidays. I'm not not anti-holidays. So I like sitting around drinking wine and I hate beaches, but I do generally like holidays. So when you're in Sardinia and you're drinking wine, do you take time out to free dive off a cliff or do you just manage to keep all that in a box? Yeah, that's in a box, yeah. I think I see them as completely distinct things. I don't think... What we do is a version of a holiday or travel. I think it's a totally different thing. It's like, a life experience, like a isn't it? Yeah, like a hobby of some kind, yeah. It's, a it's actually kind of introducing an element of spontaneity and danger 
into people's lives where that isn't part of their life. Yeah, and I think increasingly that is hard to find. People's lives get busier and then people invent gadgets to make that more convenient and it becomes increasingly impossible to find a way to not know what's going on. And that's fine, that's convenient and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think humans were born in an age where we had to run away from tigers. There is a need for people to rely on your, on your kind of instinct. I think people feel better for it. Tom Morgan of The Adventurists and some of the extraordinary pictures from Tom's flight in South Africa are on our website, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Alex Fox is up next after this. Now time for sex tips from a woman whose sexual pleasures are always sky high. It's Alex Fox with the foxhole. How are you, Alex? I have seen a spectacular play uh, by a young female playwright called Isley Lynn, which is called Skin a Cat, that deals with the subject of vaginismus, which Uh I believe we've mentioned on the show before. Yes, uh, vaginas that sort of lock, if that's not too (laughs) crude a way to describe it. Lockable foofs. Yeah, it's a condition where the muscles of the vagina spasm and clamp up involuntarily to the point where penetrating with a finger or a tampon or a penis becomes painful to the point of impossibility. There are lots of things that the play brings up which I found particularly interesting. Uh, For a start, it busts a heck of a lot of myths. It takes away the prevalent idea that people with vaginismus must be asexual or not desiring to have sex in any way. Uh, The protagonist uh, really, really wants to consummate her relationship. She really wants to have penetrative sex, but it's just not happening for her. Um, Another interesting approach that it takes is to consider vaginismus perhaps not a problem that needs to be solved, but something that you can work with. And for me, that's quite revolutionary. Okay, uh, time for our sex question of the week. It comes from Jen, who says, As a woman, I seem to struggle with the opposite issue to most when it comes to having an orgasm. For me, they happen easily and through penetrative sex. I'm sure plenty of people would now like to get in touch with Jen, but she isn't single, I'm afraid. Although at first glance, this doesn't seem like a problem. It's gotten to the point, after I've come for the fifth or sixth time in 15 or 20 minutes, my body is exhausted. So Alex, do you have any tips to keep my orgasms at bay so that I can keep pace with my potential new partner? He said he thinks it's great, uh, but I do get embarrassed by it. Now, as she says... At first listen, a lot of people would go, oh, what's the problem here? Mm. But actually, this is something that um, I can kind of relate to. In my in my recent times, I have been <clears throat> becoming intimate with a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether it's the chemistry between us, his particular techniques. I don't know. It, it, everything seems to be, all the pieces, all the magical Tetris pieces seem to be slotting together in such a way that, I find myself in almost a perpetual rolling state of orgasm when we're together. And and this quickly. So what would normally be an oven baker's become a microwave? It renders me speechless, which I know is a very hard concept for anybody who knows me to even imagine. I can (laughs) barely get a sentence out when, when we are playing together, which he finds highly amusing. But I do have some guilt because I turn into this gelatinous jellified just a mess just an absolute melted mess so quickly when I'm with him that I feel that I can't actually pay attention to 
returning the favour or, or, or doing my, you know, doing my part in making sure that the pleasure is reciprocal. You've um, lost some of your game. I'm game over before I've even started. I yeah. just seem to have, I've lost all of my potency, if you will. See, now what's very interesting about what you're saying is that uh, you have a wide variety of sexual experiences as detailed previously on the show, and yet this seems to be being caused by this new partner of yours. Now what Jen is saying is that actually her sexual history is she always comes very quickly. So it sounds in her case maybe it's more physical, less emotional. Well, this is an important point, really, because it suggests that for some people this is a person permanent condition and it might be to do with the way that they're physically wired Mm. whereas for other people like me it may well be psychological it might be to do with uh, how relaxed I feel in this particular scenario or the intensity of atmosphere and mood created it might be a lot to do with the partner now often when we talk about orgasms happening too soon or uh, sex feeling too overwhelming for a person more frequently than not we are discussing men yes It's really important that we also acknowledge that this can happen to women too. In fact, in its most extreme form, uh, it's called persistent genital arousal disorder, which is a a situation where uh, women or men, in fact, it can happen to men too, but uh, it's been documented in quite a few women, uh, experience spontaneous persistent unwanted and uncontrollable genital arousal and that can even happen completely in the absence of sexual stimulation long story short there are women out there who are coming all the time even though they don't want to going back to jen's particular situation here there will certainly be people out there who say well what's what's the problem um because women don't have the same refractory period as men meaning that they can keep going essentially yeah recover from an orgasm quickly and have another one well i must be honest when i was reading jen's email that is kind of what i was thinking until i got to the bit where she said after i've come five or six times Mm -hmm. in 15 or 20 minutes because i think if it was you know two or three times then you i mean as a man i think that'd be great if i could do that like if that would it would curb any problem of thinking am i going to come too soon because then you have to wait for possibly indefinitely if you've killed the mood completely <laughs> but certainly at least five or ten minutes whereas in her case as a woman if it is possible to keep going and it's just as pleasurable the second and third time what's the problem but then you get to six times and you're thinking you know christ you, you can be exhausted well much like jen's highly sensitive vulva the problem here is multifold um the problems can be psychological and physical so physically she's likely to feel absolutely knackered yeah. orgasms uh, depending on the type that you have and the way you personally experience it within your body can be you know a very physical clenchy experience lots of people naturally feel really tired afterwards and even achy in some cases mm. you can also feel feel very sore or just highly sensitive afterwards Jen may actually find that being touched after she's come especially several times might almost feel painful or at least overwhelming lots of men say that immediately after they've uh, reached climax that they don't want their penis to be touched because it's Mm. just too much so physically she might be experiencing that those kind of issues psychologically lots of women who come really easily and quickly say they feel like they're being selfish because this situation renders it quite difficult for them to concentrate on their partner's pleasure or on creating a scene or sex isn't just about orgasm and if you want it to be about creating a mood or escapism then if you're coming that quickly and it's becoming painful to carry on within 5, 10, 15 minutes, then that might scupper the larger goal that you want to achieve with your intimate experience. Okay, so let's offer her some tips then. 
First up, SEX is not just about the genitals. Oh, you're not going to start saying we need to talk about things again. (laughs) Well, talking about it is always a good idea in sex. But Jen and her partner have whole bodies. They are holistic beings. Oh, yes. If stimulating the clitoris or if penetration are what is pushing Jen over the brink faster than she wants to be, then this is a great opportunity for them to explore sensory pleasures of the rest of the body. That might not even involve touching at all. It might um, involve reading each other erotic stories or speaking to each other in a sexy way that's really nice but if it's building up to penetrative sex and she comes really quickly during penetrative sex if she's been sort of put into gear so to speak by extensive foreplay then that might exacerbate the problem mightn't it? it might be over in seconds well in that case perhaps the foreplay although as we know i don't really like that word perhaps the play yes. uh, can focus Is more sex, on her partner for a while yeah. so she might want to pleasure him uh, with oral sex or with uh, giving him a hand job or this might be a great opportunity to explore some uh, toys that stimulate the penis or the prostate so place the focus on pleasuring him for a while Something that I have observed about myself and have been thinking a lot about lately is that if I add in certain extra sensations during an intimate experience, so if there's music playing, if there's someone speaking to me, if uh, maybe my neck or my back or my scalp are being stimulated, all of those things for me help to prolong a pleasurable experience, but because they're kind of diluting and dissipating the sensory input that I've got, they almost act as a distraction Mm. for me. Um, This may not play out the same way for Jen. Some people find that multi-sensory input brings them to orgasm faster, whereas other people like me find that it allows them to prolong an experience because their pleasure is not so genitally focused. Mm -hmm. So Jen might want to put that one in the next. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Her partner and her do need to have a conversation. I know that you'll probably roll your eyes there, Ollie. God's sake. One thing perfect situation. He doesn't want to ruin this with a conversation, (laughs) surely. Well, I think it's important that he realises that bringing Jen to climax over and over again, although in mainstream society that might be seen as a real point of pride for him and a real positive thing, in this case it may not be all the time. She needs to know that she's got permission to tap out and take a little bit of a break or that... um, she can feel confident in saying to him, I need a rest without him feeling like he needs to plow on with the plowing. Mm. Um, so if they could have that conversation and maybe he's got some ideas of things that he would like to try that can, you know, that are more uh, whole body focused or uh, things that she can do for him. So she feels like she's a full part of that intimate experience that aren't going to get in a way waylaid by her, her overwhelming orgasms. I also spoke to a woman called Nim, uh, who has exactly the same problem as Jen. And she says, uh, I've managed to stave off orgasms if I really concentrate. And one thing that's really helped her is uh, exploring a dominant and submissive relationship where she gets her partner to give her permission to tell her when to come. And she said that setting up that power dynamic makes her feel more like her partner is directly involved in the orgasm happening rather than it just being a thing that instantly happens without either of them really thinking about it. I think that could even be taken further by perhaps if they counted to five together, Mm. like the orgasm is going to happen in five, four, three, two, counting that together 
has that power play dynamic, which a lot of people find very exciting and might bring a new dimension to Jen's sexual experiences, which previously have sounded a bit like a bit one track, if you will. It can help slow it down, but also just five seconds should hopefully be manageable. And they can even make this an exciting thing to work on themselves That's uh, a good together. Idea. You know, it can be a mutual challenge. It's interesting as well because a lot of the advice, again, thinking of this from a male point of view in terms of premature ejaculation, would be around this is other men advising each other, by the way. I'm not talking about if you ask a sexual therapist, would be distract yourself, think about something else. That's the classic schoolboy way of dealing with it. Whereas actually, what you're saying is something almost tantric where you go deeper. Yeah. Uh, we spoke spoke about tantra in the last um, in the last season and one idea that came up which I thought was a really fascinating and compelling one was that rather than trying to put your mind somewhere non-sexual if you're trying to avoid coming that you can actually just move your focus and your thoughts to somewhere else on your body that's also pleasurable but at a lower level mm. so you might concentrate on how your feet feel or the back of your knees or the inside of your elbows somewhere that's still sensual but is not genitally focused that way you're not breaking that mood you're not having to allow the, the hideousness of Margaret Thatcher or oatmeal or <laughs> emptying the bins or whatever it is to stutter your experience and to halt that pleasure. You're just moving it elsewhere. And speaking of moving, Nim did give one final tip that I absolutely love. This is actually rather selfish and sneaky, but sometimes I do try and scoot onto my partner's side of the bed during foreplay because lots of orgasms leads to lots of expulsions of fluid and I just want him to sleep in the wet patch. So... <laughs> <laughs> which brings us to a nicely soggy conclusion um, if you have a question of sex for Alex to answer on next week's show what do you have to do with it roll out of your soggy sheets and use your fingers to navigate to our website which is modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and hit feedback and tweets from Alex Fox can never come too soon uh, where can people follow you online at Alex Fox that's A-L-I-X one I in there and then Fox like the rusty coloured animal that rifles through your garbage pails and with that, we have very nearly reached the end of this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new man ambassador. It's Nate in Montana, who posted us the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. He says, I started listening to this show after hearing about it on Answer Me This and now look forward to every episode. It helps keep me entertained and awake on my many, many long drives. As I live in remote Montana, the nearest grocery store being a four-hour drive away round trip. At Nate, don't forget the milk but I am pleased to appoint you Manbassador for Montana. If you'd like to post us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found this show, please do. It really helps other people discover what we're up to. Until next time, our music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.